You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command, which is my home studio in Baltimore, Maryland, 50 miles north of D.C. I was too lazy to go down to our D.C. studio. I probably should have recorded it there because my kids are crawling all over the place, yelling and screaming and fighting. And who knows what? I just I just hate hate the summer schedule. It drives me nuts. Uh, but anyway, we've had a busy week here at Conservative Review. You know, it's late Thursday. Um, I know I have not given you my full perspective on the Supreme Court pick, the vacancy, what it means, who we should pick, all this stuff. And I want to tackle that um, broadly. I do have my piece out today that I'll link to in show notes. Um, but there's so much more to say. And to the extent I have the energy and the time, I want to always come to you guys first. And I know you're such a loyal audience. And I really feel a responsibility just to just to tell you what's on my mind, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, and what I think should be should be done as always. Just a couple of show notes before we go to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, yesterday I had on Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Council, again to give this perspective on immigration that we don't we don't hear from law enforcement. You know, there's another perspective, and that's of the victims of crime, and particularly the victims of illegal immigration. And we don't hear from them. And I believe that if the country heard from them, and if they had a media apparatus, one fraction of what the um, politically correct victims have, we would have a very balanced uh, view in the country of what's going on, and people would realize there's there's a lot more on the other side of this. And I meant to have on today. Eileen Smith, um, she's an angel mom who lost her unborn son who was born in the seventh month as a result of a car crash where an illegal alien plowed into their car on her way to the baby shower with her husband, Zach, for that very baby. Um, Heartbreaking. This was in 2012, but you know, it took forever to get the guy locked up for a couple of years, and then they had a retrial, and it was crazy. And then finally, after a plea bargain, he was deported a month ago. So she seems ready to talk about it. Um, but I will tell you, it's amazing how there's no support network for these people. Whereas if you're a victim of something that's politically correct to be a victim of, you will have money and lawyers and everyone will will media PR I mean certainly we we saw that with the Parkland people but when it comes to them it's the opposite because since this implicates really two things it implicates crime in general um and it implicates illegal immigration no one's with you and there's no impetus to act and you know it was just so avoidable this guy was an roughly he he came here illegally from Honduras Ramon Hernandez in 2000 um or I think I mean, he came maybe on a tourist visa. But he overstated his visa for for forever, you know, ten years or so indefinitely. 
eight drunk driving incidents, but he pled them down most of the time. But three times he was convicted for DUI. Um, and then after that final one, he had his license suspended. And you might be asking, well, why wasn't he deported all these times? And that's exactly the point. That's the power of sanctuaries. This was in New Mexico. She's from Colorado, but they were passing through on their way to a baby shower at family in California. And it took place in New Mexico, which was a sanctuary, and they refused to send to ICE. And, and this is the point. There's one thing if you're like, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm for illegal immigration. But we should all agree that if you have someone um, do, you know, dr- drunk driving, it, 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 it's terrible. I mean, that, that we, have a, we have our own problem here domestically. Um, but, you know, there's a limit to how much you could, what you can do about it. I do think we need to be tougher on reoffenders, two, three times especially. Um, I think there should be mandatories, but, of course, nobody wants to deter that because we have to let more people out. And we fail to recognize the devastation of these low-level offenses when they're not so low-level when they get people killed. Anyway, this is – it's just devastating, and um, I wanted you guys to hear from her. but. For now, I because of the news cycle, we pushed it off until immigration is be, going to become a you know hotter issue again, which will undoubtedly probably be right after the July Fourth recess. If you would please join me in going to her GoFundMe page um, that she opened up, GoFundMe Justice for Dimitri. That was the name of the unborn child, and. What I've learned from this, even though I've followed this for so many years, it's just amazing that no one's there for them. So forget about you know $100,000 in debt from medical bills, but the lawyers. See, the illegals – I mean in this case, I think they had a public, he had a public defender who, by the way, afterwards made a name for himself of getting people out of DUIs. But you know these illegals at the border, they all have everything. They, they have the ACLU. They have PR. They have everything. These people, they have to pay their own way just to see justice for their kid that was killed. We don't realize the burden on victims, how hard it is. And they have to go through it and relive it, and the trial takes years, and then the retrial and the appeals. And I mean, this is even for an illegal who should have just been gone. Um, but, you know, and now she finally wants to engage in some activism and and actually push uh, anti-sanctuary laws and mandatory apprehension of ICE, you know, by ICE for those that are here illegally and caught one drunk driving because it's it's one of the most reoccurring things. Um, some like eighty percent of the time, I mean, people who who are prone to it, they're not just going to do it once. And often, you could save so many lives by preventing this. So if you go to um, I rarely, rarely do this, but if you go to her GoFundMe page, Justice for Dimitri, it, it's a very worthwhile um, worthwhile cause. And my heart goes out to, to Zach and Eileen. And uh, yeah, we'll, we're going to have, have her on the show soon, just so you see the perspective you're never going to see anywhere in the media, anywhere. No, no one will have her on. Um, and by the way, you know, PR firms have dropped her. Uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has said that they don't want her to ever mention immigration when it's such a amazing part of this is illegal immigration. I'm not saying there's not a huge problem divorced from that, but you know, in t- put it this way: in 2015 alone, Obama's ICE released 
enough illegals that together had 13,000 DUIs. This is a very pervasive problem. You could Google it every day. I get you know email alerts on immigration with you know another person's son, husband, wife killed by an illegal drunk driver. And again, this is so redressable because if you just enforced immigration law, they'd all be out of here. Um, anyway, went long on that. Okay, so who should we pick for the Supreme Court? Who should we pick? The first question you need to answer is what is the Supreme Court? Why do we have it? What do we expect to get out of it? What realistically are we going to accomplish? What are we not going to accomplish? So let me just work backwards so I don't forget. The latest news I'm hearing is that Leonard Leo, who's the head of the Federalist Society, which you know I'm not a fan of them on everything and their mentality about the judiciary, but he is pretty much is the top guy, top judicial guru, he's pushing Brett Kavanaugh, the appellate court justice on the D.C. Court of Appeals. That's known as like the feeder into the Supreme Court because it's in some ways the second most important court in the, in the country, second most powerful court in the country because all of the constitutional cases seem to arise from there that deal with government. So, you know, Look, none of them are going to be terrible, none of the people on the list, but, you know, to quote, what is that? Was it the Eminem song? I believe it, yeah. It's the Eminem lyrics, um, lose yourself, you want it, you better never let it go, you only get one shot, do not miss your chance to blow, the opportunity comes once in a lifetime. So, you know, we need the very best, okay? They have Republican president, Republican Senate, you're going to flip Kennedy seat, who was a horrible justice, despite what some people want to say. Um, you have an opportunity of a lifetime. You want to pick only the very best. And it's, you know, it's, they don't stand for election. You get one shot at it. So this is a guy, among other things, that I just get the impression he's another John Roberts. He is the guy, let's not forget, that upheld Obamacare, or at least technically kind of tossed the lawsuit against Obamacare by building the foundation for John Roberts at the appellate court level that Obamacare's attacks, which is insane. The whole view that when government mandates, regulates inactivity upon you, forces you to engage in commerce, that that's somehow part of their tax power. That, that's very problematic. Um, you know, he's written some good things on the CFPB, but... I'm I'm very concerned about that. So that's just to, to get that out of the way. Uh, that's the latest I'm hearing, and that, that could change. Um, but that brings me to a broader point. A lot of people might be wondering, especially those that those of you who read my book, read read probably you know well over a hundred articles on the judiciary and heard all my podcasts on this issue, you might be wondering, all right, well, what do, what do you care, Daniel? Isn't your thesis that it won't help to appoint good judges anyway, and we need judicial reform? We need Congress, the other branches, even the states, when it's appropriate to push back, and everyone needs to equally interpret the Constitution, and we need to end judicial supremacy. And that's, that, that is all true. Fundamentally, in the long run, I believe that is true. 
Um, while we have a better opportunity than ever, if Trump especially has two terms, to appoint more better judges than ever. But still, you know, in the long run, the left is more destructive than ever. The lethality of the cases they're bringing and winning in the lower courts are more devastating than ever. We can't afford to lose them. They only have to win once, and then it's pretty much enshrined forever, and we have to win every time. So the stakes are much higher, and I do believe that no matter what, fundamentally, we're never going to win from judicial supremacy, from making it that the courts are the sole and exclusive arbiter, but maybe we'll get our guys and strike down more of their laws than they strike down our policies. It's never going to wind up working that way. Now, with that said, there is a little bit of a difference where it is going to make somewhat of a difference in the short run that you know, if you have a free shot at this, you want to get it right – that you know, relative to before when it was just filling Scalia's seat to get back on par to the Obergefell balance of hell, plus the lower courts are worse than ever, even with you know the Trump's nominees that just aren't really landing in in the right seats. Here, when you're flipping, have the opportunity to totally flip Kennedy's seat. It's at least it it, it is going to matter in in a certain sense that I want to discuss. But before that. We need to discuss what is the role of the judiciary. What is the role of the courts? What does the judicial power mean? What does the legislative power mean? What does the executive power mean? What did our framers have in mind in terms of striking down laws, in terms of the balance of power between the various branches of government? What did they have in mind with the whole concept of judicial review and and what does that mean so to anyone who understands the founding of the constitution this really wasn't a very hard issue it really wasn't a hard issue not at all the constitution is the law of the land now at the time of our founding to begin with, there wasn't much disagreement. Now, don't get me wrong. There were scholarly, sharp disagreements and fights. But if you looked at the magnitude of what they were fighting over, it's, it wasn't like, gee, do you have a right to self-defense or not? Or do you only have a right to immigrate? Do I have a right to your property, but you don't have a right to your pro- property? Is homosexuality a national religion? Is gay marriage in the constant? No, you know what I mean? You didn't have 95%, you didn't have 1%, much less 95% of the legal profession that thought um, Muslims in Yemen have a right to immigrate, but Americans living here with their own private property don't have a right to just be left alone and not be harassed by the government to engage in voluntary servitude for something that not only violates their conscience, but really the founding of our country. So, you know, you never, this whole notion of what to do when you disagree over these issues never came up because you never had such a vast gulf where you literally have Mars and Earth, Mars and Venus. So the stakes were never that high. But what our founders envisioned is that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And if you understand that, it's not so this, this false polarization of do you agree with Marshall and Marbury versus Madison Judicial Review or not becomes a lot more limited. 
It's like everyone asks me, Daniel, do you believe in judicial review or not? And what I say is, well, I don't know. I don't think you understand what judicial review is, but I agree with it the way the founders viewed it. And what it means is that everyone has an obligation to uphold the Constitution. And indeed, everyone, every high officer of all three branches of government and the state governments, by the way, swear an oath to uphold the federal Constitution. Now, in the state, in the case of the states, in addition, the oath of office includes their respective state. But everyone has that obligation to uphold the Constitution. So what do you do when people aren't upholding the Constitution? So that's why they have separation of powers. And each one uses their appropriate avenue, the power they have, to push back against what's going on. You have to use your powers in concert with the Constitution. So. The legislative branch legislates. They could pass – it's the most sweeping. You could pass laws on a federal level, level pursuant to the enumerated powers, on a state level much more sweeping, dealing with all sorts of internal affairs. And you have the power of the purse. You control all the money, the funding, which is the lifeblood of everything. And then the executive branch, A, executes those laws and oversees their implementation controls the officers that are directing and enforcing those laws. And then in addition, he has the chief executive, which is the president on the federal level and the governor on a state level, has a veto. So he could veto those laws. But once he signs those laws, then he is bound by them and every subsequent president or governor is bound by them as well, unless a new Congress overturns it and, you know, the chief executive signs into law. Notice what's missing from my equation. We didn't say, oh, and then wait, stop, stop. It goes to the judiciary and they veto or uphold it. Strike down or not strike down or uphold. No, there's no double layer of veto. And in fact, there was a time, and Madison was pushing this, there was a time during the nascent days of the Constitutional Convention where Madison and, and some others thought this was a good idea to have a what they called was a council of revision, where they would actually do that. You would... You would have someone exclusively kind of having, having the exclusive and final say, not, maybe not initially exclusive, but certainly the final say over the constitutionality. Like, who's going to control the Constitution? I mean, how do I know? So, you know, you have to use your powers to legislate and appropriate in concert with the Constitution. You have to use your executive powers in concert with the Constitution. The judiciary, when they adjudicate cases and controversies between individuals, um, criminal cases, interpret statutes. You got to um, use your use the laws in in concert with the with the Constitution. But what happens if there's a disagreement? I mean, how do you know you know if who's right? So there was this, you know, you see it was floated this idea of what essentially we treat today Council of Revision to uphold or strike down. But there's a couple of important points to be made about that. Number one, uh, it was rejected. <laughs> that's not what they adopted. So that's the biggest proof that 
the fact that we're operating the judiciary as a council of revision, that it can't be the proper method that we adopted and ratified in, uh, in 1787, right? But then furthermore, even under that system, it wasn't the stupidity that we have nowadays. It, was, it wasn't a second layer. You, you have a Congress that duly passes law, divided into two branches, bicameral. One represents the people. One represents the states, at least you know before the 17th Amendment. Um, and then it goes to a president for a veto. And then, no, now there's another layer. No, even under that idea, that floated idea, it was, that was layer number two, not layer number three. It, it was instead of the presidential veto, you had a council of revision that the president and several members of the Supreme Court got together and ruled on it. So there's two differences. Number one, that was in lieu of the veto, not on top of it, that there's a whole nother check on, on passing of laws. And number two, you had some sort of elected representation in that very powerful council of revision, namely the president. So what I'm saying is even what was rejected, no one ever had this inkling that a nine people in robes could get the exclusive and final say of the constitutionality of every issue. And then ha- that would somehow transmogrify into de- determining every social and political outcome in the entire country, much less the notion that the congressionally created lower courts under the Supreme Court would have such power and then apply it nationwide like we're seeing today. Never, never in their in their right mind. So what is the power of the judiciary? The judicial power means to adjudicate individual civil and criminal cases. You're fundamentally not dealing with public policy. You're not dealing with legislation. You're not upholding or striking down laws at all. And, you know, 99% it's supposed to be technically just interpreting the statute. Um, are, did, are, are you, you know, liable to, for this criminal statute? Or, you know, in a civil suit, you know, you have to adjudicate between people. That all they wanted was uh, they wanted to outsource that one very limited role. It's a very important role in our system. And our, you need it. You absolutely need it. You need it for law and order. You need people to be able to, um, you know, take their grievances to a court. But in terms of shaping the public policy, it was very, 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 very limited, weak, and almost non-existent. Why? For a number of reasons. So to begin with, their job is not judicial review. Their job is statutory interpretation as, as a baseline. Okay, so where does judicial review come in? The question arises if, what if, okay, I come to a court and say, you know, look, I have a grievance. Well, what does the law say? Well, the law says you're wrong. You're you're liable to pay. No, but that law is not following the Constitution. Yet Congress passed it, but what if it doesn't follow the Constitution. So if you understand properly what judicial review is, and it doesn't come from Marbury. Marshall, not my favorite founder, to to say the least, he plagiarized the decision from Hamilton in Federalist 78, as well as James Wilson in his writings. They they all talked about this 20 years earlier. So there's nothing new about it. So I'm actually going to blow up judicial review even bigger and more prominent than you thought it was in order to knock it down. It's actually more foundational than that. But what is it? What What's the is there? What it means is if I am, if I am a, a justice 
just like the other branches, not more than the other branches, but just like the other branches, I have a role in interpreting the Constitution. Why? Because I have to, I, I can't violate it. So let's say they come to me and someone says, anyone named Bob Smith has to pay an extra 10% in taxes. Well, that's kind of a bill of attainder. That That's fundamentally repugnant to the Constitution, as Hamilton said in Federalist 78. So, what, so he's not vetoing the law. I mean, anyone who is skilled in the Constitution and is learned in law should, should understand that, that under everyone's system, there's no striking down of laws. It's, it's a lazy terminology. That's not mechanically what happens. Um, what it is is you could grant that plaintiff relief. No, no, no. You don't have to pay it because the Constitution says you don't have to pay it, and the Constitution is the ultimate law of the land. Okay. But the notion that what that judge said, that if you want to apply that as a broad public policy rule to be binding on everyone and that the other branches cannot use their avenues of power to push back on that, that is foreign to the founders, and indeed it is a refutation to the very notion of judicial review because the very premise of judicial review eschews judicial supremacy because the whole point is that no single branch even the strong legislature shall be the law of the land the constitution should so even the weak judiciary not only but even the weak judiciary has to look at the constitution but how much more so the the other branches of government now, the founders never envisioned this coming up too often because, again, why are they the weakest branch of government? Because they can't initiate anything. Let's say Congress sees something egregious going on. They could step in. The president sees something egregious going on. He could, he could use a lot of his powers to check the legislature um, obviously, the veto power, and and he ultimately has the enforcement, and he could refuse to enforce. He has the sword. He has the sword. Congress has the purse. What do the what do do the courts have? They have nothing but their pen. And what happens? What what they you know figured would happen is that by definition. For something to be a valid case or controversy, it wouldn't be a broad public policy issue. Fundamentally, when does life begin? What's a marriage? It would be you have an individualized grievance that affects your negative rights, your locomotion. You're like, look, I don't want anything. I'm not trying anything. Government is coming and ripping things away from me, and it violates my fundamental rights. I have the right to go to a court. But what's amazing is even if a court sees that, could a court step in? No. A court can't, can't do anything. You have to get the case to them. So think about – no no one I, – I don't know anyone else who has made this point, but it's important to, to hear this. Think about the absurdity here if you understand the judiciary like our modern body politic does. On the one hand, you could have a law around for 200 years that no one finds the right – technical way to get it before the judges and the fancy lawyers to write it up and you know tee it up for them you can have the most egregious constitutional violation going on for 200 years 
But if you just happen to get it into the court through a technical case, struck down. No, it doesn't work that way. Because if the founders designed that, then they would have given them a front-end way to initiate that. How, how absurd of a system would that look that on the back end, they're God? They are, they could, they could say, I, 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 I've, you know, government has the right to castrate you, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it, and none of the other branches could do anything about it, and, and even a lower court could say that if, if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn them. No, because it wouldn't make sense that, that you only, because you got a case or controversy in there, so then therefore now it's binding more powerful than literally a veto of an executive or a legislation of, of, a, of a legislature, whereas their things could be overturned, your thing can't? No, it's not a matter of overturning or striking down. It's a matter of you, John Smith, here's the ruling. I'm telling you, you have the Constitution on your side. Um, usually, again, it's the law, but where the law violates the Constitution, Constitution's on your side. But if the other branches want to you know, push back, they have the right to do that. And and it also matters more, are the courts putting a positive on the negative of the executive and legislature or, or putting a negative on their positive? So in other words, you know, and, and this also has to do with rules of standing. If I come before a court and say, I don't like that World War One Cross Memorial in Blandenburg, Maryland, right? This is the case that in the Fourth Circuit that they said it's unconstitutional. It's, it's a, establishing, establishing Christianity as a religion. Where the hell is your standing? Right, that, That's the point. They, they can't rule on that. Meaning, aside from the fact that on the merits, of course, it's it's flipping our heritage and our constitution on its head. That's not what the Establishment Clause means. It's the exact opposite. Um, they're actually violating the Establishment Clause by compelling and, and forcing people. Right, You're not... How does it hurt you? Mine eyes, mine eyes. I got to look at it. Shut up. Like you know, get it, get a life, grow up. That, that that's not that's not a justicable case. It should never be. You know, the original activist in the judiciary in the world was Israeli Supreme Court Justice Aaron Barak. He once said, "Everything is justicable," and therein lies the the dichotomy here: understanding what is the judiciary and what is not the judiciary. What is the judicial power, right? You you can't, you know, I want three weeks of early voting. No, get a life. Go get your legislature to pass that. Or I don't like photo ID laws. I mean, if you personally were denied, then come to me. If you're denied and we'll look at your case, why were you denied? You know, they offer, you know, who the, who the hell doesn't have a photo ID? Every last thing in life, I have to show it every day. I don't understand it. But if you're one in a tr- in three million who's like that, the government, all these states that pass those laws, provide it to you for free. So why don't you get it? But to preemptively sue the policy in the abstract when no one, there's no direct Bob Smith who was denied, and you just have the, they never envision these third party NAACP, ACLU, drudge up straw man plaintiffs to put a law and shoot at it directly. In, in a judiciary, you can't shoot at a law. We didn't adopt such a such a system. It's if you were denied, hey, they deny you denied you to the franchise. Well, why? What happened? And if indeed it was egregious and it was it violated the constitution, then they could give you relief. No, you have the right to vote. But you, know, you see, what I'm saying that's not justicable. It's not justicable. Where where is it appropriate? 
where is it appropriate? And and by the way, before before that, I know I know, I know I'm jumping all over the place. I'm going long here, but it's important to recognize that you know they're placing a positive on the negative of states or the, or federal legislatures, Congress. Um, you must have three weeks of early voting. Uh, no fat judge, you get out your rear end off the bench and you go and man the polls and hire clerks um, three Sundays before an election to have voting month instead of voting day. Right, in other words, that's not, they don't have the right to, their job was to protect rights because by definition, rights don't mean positive things. Voting is very important, but not early voting, that's BS. Um, but even that, it's close to a right, but it's not a, it's not an unalienable right. Um, it's still a privilege, and it's still that's why, um, dating back to the eighteen hundreds, you already you know felons can be stripped of that privilege to vote. Um, it is not unalienable. Unalienable by definition means negative, negative. So the government is placing a positive. The one I'll tell you where it's appropriate, even where it implicates a full law, is Obamacare and the Janus case with the labor unions. You are forcing someone to engage in commerce. Right, it's not that you're denying them of something. You're you're mandating that they cough it up, cough up this money, give give money, give your paycheck to the Democrat Party every every uh, month, um, go and buy crony cartel crap insurance, you know that the government is is subsidizing and giving a monopoly to. No, you, no, I, I have a right to earn a living and abide my by my conscience, and I don't I don't you know you don't have such power. So I have a right to grant, ask for relief. That's not a BS, you know. Now, again, our side is doing it back to the other side, and they did it to get in the court. But I would argue that even then, you know, everyone's going to say, well, Daniel, you know, be consistent. You know, if you you don't believe in judicial supremacy, so with Janice and with Obamacare, like, look, if I'm a judge, I would have ruled that way. Look, you know, I have to follow the Constitution. But I don't disagree that if you want to be California or, or another state and say, look, I believe you're wrong on the Constitution, that is their right and responsibility to fight back. Now, obviously, again, it's a little bit confusing because our founders would have never recognized a scenario like this where we would have such a wide gulf where you have people that believe what's antithetical to the Constitution is the Constitution and what's in it is not in it. What's a federal power is given to the states. What's a state power is given to the feds. They would never see something this absurd. Um, so, you know, it's like Daniel, well, you know, you, you want to go all Abraham Lincoln and you believe Douglas was wrong and that the other branches could fight back. Um, well, do the, Demo- do the does the left have the right on the few cases where courts so-called struck down liberal stuff? And the answer is yes, they have that right. Now, I'm going to still litigate against them. When I say litigate, I don't mean the courts. I mean court of public opinion, um, politically fight against them, militate against them. Uh, because I believe they're wrong, not because you're disobeying a court, because you're disobeying the Constitution, because I, I'm in the right. Who ultimately decides that? Madison wrote about this in many of his letters. It's ultimately public opinion. It's ultimately the elections, ultimately everyone together. You know, it's like, then we'll take them back to court and then they'll fight back. And, you know, it goes around. And, you know, again, but it, it's especially poignant on. Most of the cases they want to bring to the court, which are positive privileges, I want to immigrate. I'm a foreign national, or I want, um, you know, I have a right to vote without show, showing 
photo ID. No, I mean, like, no, I'm sorry. Or I have a right to this entitlement. No, I mean, you can't force the executive branch and Congress to cough up visas. We will not do that. That's not even diso- – disobeying a court is the other way. That's when – I've said this many times. A court stays in execution. That's the ultimate negative. You're killing someone. And we might believe it's garbage what they say. But, you know, yeah, if an executive would say, no, you, you, this guy, I'm going to go and, and, and execute him, you're disobeying the court. But what I would say is that, is that broadly speaking, you have that power to push back. Meaning you gave your decision. Now, first of all, many of these decisions are illegitimate because they're not legitimate standing and they should be ignored. Now, there are cases where they did have legitimate standing, but the merits are, are wrong and the, the constitutional interpretation is wrong. And fine, you gave him a ruling. But if you want to show that you want to apply that as, as binding precedent, I have the right to push back against it. And, and I gave you many examples um, the way this would work out in, in the public. So – for example, um, they say anyone that Obama gave amnesty to deserves a work permit and social security card, a visa. Okay, you're you got it. So Trump would have the right to say, uh, uh, "No, um, I'm sorry, we're we're not doing that. That's insane. I, I my my executive power is to issue." Um, the issue visas, not your power. The, your, see, your power is to give grant relief to a plaintiff, but my power is to execute the laws faithfully. And the law says that you have to be deported, much less you know be given rights in this country and, and benefits, affirmative privileges. So therefore, not only do I have the prerogative, but I have the responsibility. I mustn't disobey the law. Now, is that law constitutional? Of course, because the Constitution gave Congress the power over immigration. Congress said this, and I must follow Congress in this case. I cannot follow what you're saying. That's what the founders had in mind. And then Congress has the power to come back and say, we're going to downright defund the issuance of visas because they could use their power. Now, yeah, stupid ACLU could come back and have another lawsuit, and it kind of goes around. Who ultimately wins? It's ultimately the public has to decide. But they actually, the courts actually have the smallest hand because they just have, you know, the ability of someone to come in front of them and say, pretty please, can you give me relief? But the 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 purse and the shield and the and the sword is is all in the hands of the other branches. Perhaps one of the best um statements I've ever read on this to, to that encapsulates it. Is actually 11th Circuit Judge um, Bill Bill Pryor. He's um, always been one of the top picks um, for Supreme Court among many conservatives. But from what I hear, he's unlikely to be picked. In this case, he said Alexander Hamilton explained in Federalist 78 that judges exercise neither force nor will, but merely judgment. So he he wanted to define what that means. He said, quote, Hamilton's point was that we must depend upon the persuasiveness of our written opinions to command the respect of our fellow citizens. In that way, we have the foremost responsibility of safeguarding our independence. You want to have your independence, you want to have your power, write good opinions, and then people – and this is especially true nowadays where you see it all online. Anyone could read this. We're like, wow, that guy has the better – argument that that's really the law really violates the constitution or no the law is constitutional 
Um, or no, that that's bull crap. You want to say that 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 foreign nationals have a uh, due process, equal equal protection, um, religious freedom, right to immigrate? Well, what what are you talking about? You're you're crazy. The public will ultimately decide that there is no finality. There cannot be because that's tyranny. And most certainly, that finality cannot be in the hands of those who are lifetime appointed and don't stand for election. Now you can understand. A lot of people are like Daniel. Why in the world are these people? Um, why are they? Not why don't they stand for election? That sounds so tyrannical if they have so much power. The answer is they don't have the power. And if you understand their true power, you understand why they're not elected because they were supposed to not get influenced by politics because it was never about politics. It was like IBM and Microsoft have a dispute in civil litigation. So, you know, you don't want the members of Congress that have to stand for election, the constituencies, and one's more powerful than the other. They're going to influence. No, you make the laws, but you have to outsource the application interpretation to a, an independent third party, which is the the federal judiciary. But obviously, if you want to make policy to override executive and legislative powers that they can't come back and legislate, use the power of the purse enforcement against that, that was foreign to them. They left at that. That's why Hamilton left at the notion that it would that judicial review would transmogrify into judicial supremacy. He was like, "What power do they have to enforce that other than the persuasiveness of their words?" It, it, he, he like he was like, "If if they're going to write crap opinions and say that a man's a woman, you know, people wouldn't listen to them. They'd probably lock them up in a mental asylum." Uh, that that was the point there. But the other branches just won't. They they, they won't fight back. So that's how we have this situation where the courts are now the most powerful thing and now the country is gripped by this notion that oh my gosh the swing seat you know this is more powerful than a king forget it about the president we only vote for the president and the senate just so they could vote for the judicial pick and he's gonna decide every legislative issue so this is what we need to change but ultimately ultimately if this is where we are in the short term you better believe i want to know where the guy is on all the key issues so, so what am I looking for? So obviously, in an ideal world, I wouldn't care. It wouldn't matter. Now that you have that background, if the court was what it really should be, it wouldn't matter. And I wouldn't care. But the Democrats and the left, they're, they're going to have to lie in the judicial bed that they made. They're the ones that made the courts this way. They made it that they decide everything. And then, yeah, I mean, so you better believe that we're going to get the spoils of war. They're complaining that, what do you mean that, you know, you blocked Garland and said wait for the election, but you're not waiting for the election on this? Well, yeah, the difference is that the Republicans had the Senate then, so they had the ability to do it. And now we have the president and the Senate, so we have the ability to not wait. We're, we're going to do what we want. That's what the election was about. It shouldn't be about that. Our founders would have left at the notion that you'd have an election not congress doesn't matter the president doesn't matter just for the sake of the fact that they're going to get to determine the judicial picks they would have laughed at that you know john jay um in a letter he wrote to john adams he was one of the original um or early supreme court justices under george washington and president adams wanted to tap him to come back up to the court for to fill a vacancy under under his uh, administration and he um you know again he 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 was a member of that first supreme court and he lamented how boring and inconsequential the court was in molding the direction of the country um it's just it's just a fascinating letter 
you know, he complained it wasn't on equal footing with other branches and it was miserable. And, you know, John Jay was kind of a flamboyant guy. He was a political statesman type. He was secretary of state. He wanted to go into politics. Um, he didn't want to sit in some stuffy room adjudicating criminal cases or bankruptcy law. Um, you know, in his waning years, he wanted to, to make a difference. And that's where you weren't going to make a difference. Because by definition, the case, I mean, even the original Marbury versus Madison is so in the weeds case. And ironically, it was the court striking down Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 that they said gave too much power to the courts to, to have original jurisdiction over um, this case. But the cabinet appointments, it was it was it was so it was so in the weeds. It wasn't a national political issue that was going to be binding precedent and broadly consequential. That's the irony of, of Marbury versus Madison. And and that's the type of stuff they had. And, and again, in, in the rare instances that it implicated something and, you know, really came up obviously later on during Dred Scott and slavery, um, you know, fine. But the other branches could fight back against that. And it's not going to be considered as the final say on the on the broad matter. Um, you know, Madison said in Federalist 49 that several departments being perfectly coordinated by the terms of their common commission, neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. Um, you know, and I think a lot of this, it's just, it, it's taken off because people like finality and order. But, you know, North Korea has a lot of finality and order too. So, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but this is, is a lot, a lot better. But anyway, they, um, they built it. They made it political. Um, Republicans for years, even when they had the presidency, they appointed liberal justices. And yet when, you know, when Reagan appointed Bork, they went nuts. They 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 almost, you know, they, they, they killed his nomination. They almost killed Clarence Thomas. And even then, Republicans didn't return the favor with Ginsburg and Breyer a couple of years later in the early 90s. They voted for for. Almost all of them voted unanimously for them. So, you know, Republicans weren't the ones who made this political. <clears throat> that That is very clear. Democrats made the court political and then they made the confirmation process political. So, look, you got to fight fire with fire. If, if the left is going to use the courts and the lower courts are now going to say the Democrat Party platform and the most radical elements of it, the Antifa elements are now the law of the land, you better believe we're going to want certainty that our guy is going to oppose all this. I'm sorry. You know, I agree that legally you shouldn't have to know where the guy is if it's all about what the court was supposed to be. But in this game, if we're going to play this game, I, I would rather we have a grand bargain and just announce we're you know, going to get rid of judicial review. Again, if you understand what it is, it's not a problem, but it's been abused. I think the easier thing is just say, look, you know, you got to, and that's kind of what Jefferson had in mind because they are unelected at the end of the day. But again, you know, if you understand the proper role of it, it's really not that harmful and it's actually useful where it, it is properly applied. I would I would say, look, you know, you want to take politics out of the confirmation, take politics out of the court, and then I don't care who you appoint. Um, but you better believe I want someone good. And here, here's the thing. Getting back to Brett Kavanaugh, we need someone that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt. And all of these circuit court judges or maybe state Supreme Court justices, maybe people in these legal circles that are in the federal society, they know them and they know they're for sure um, going to be with us on all the issues. I don't know that. And most people don't know that. And based on past history, we can't assume that. 
I mean, you see that on the political level. Oh, this guy's awesome. And I, you know, I always say, well, I don't think so. And everyone thinks I'm like the Eeyore that nobody is, nobody's good enough. And then I'm proven right. Um, you know, even with Gorsuch, you know, he, he's generally been pretty good. It's only one year. There's still a lot we don't know. And why should we risk it when the other side, there's no doubt because they control 95, 95% of the law profession. So it's so easy to just, every one of them, you know where they're going to be. Our guys are swimming in a, in a sea where they have to entertain the other side because they control the at-bats at court, NAACP, ACLU. They control the lawsuits. They control – they built 50 years of anti-constitutional jurisprudence that even the good guys that don't really like it, they go along with it. So you never know, you know where they're going to be. And the capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do bad. So what better sure thing than Ted Cruz and Mike Lee? Pick a senator that we know their hearts and minds. We know their intellect on all these issues. I know where they're going to be. Some random appellate court justice, they might be great. I, I don't know. I don't know of any other good guy. It's not to say they don't exist. But why not go for it? But it, it doesn't appear that's what they're pushing. And I think Mike Lee's the best choice. Obviously, Ted Cruz... Um, you know, he's just not going to be picked for a number of reasons. He's running for re-election. He doesn't want it. And he himself is leading the fight to push Mike Lee. I also like Thomas Lee because I've read a lot of his writings. And again, maybe if I read other writings, I'd like it too. But I think they're cut from the same cloth. But the thing with Mike Lee is that it's not just a sure thing. You know, like, I mean, do we know that Alito and Gorsuch would overturn Roe? I'm fairly confident about Alito, but we don't know that. We don't know that. And Gorsuch, we, we don't really know that. You know, we kind of intimated at the that the confirmation hearings he wouldn't, but, you know, they all kind of lie, for better or for worse. In this case, it would be for better. But um, Thomas is the only sure thing. Roberts is the, I could tell you for sure, will not. And that's a big part of my piece that I'll link to where I tell you what to expect and what not to expect. But what what we need to pick is someone that there is no doubt. And I think that is clear, but in addition to being no doubt, normally normally you have the problem like this that in order to get someone who for whom there's no doubt basically they have to be all over the place. If they're all over the place then you know, yeah, Republicans have control, but it's extremely narrow, and the rhinos are gonna rebel. You know, particularly Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, particularly on the immigration, on the abortion issue. Um, that is, you know, that's that's where we are. Mike Lee is the perfect guy because unlike Ted Cruz, it's just because of his personality. They all really he gets along with them, and being a colleague, they'd be very hard pressed to vote against him. So strategically, it's a very good move. Also, it just Mike Lee is the biggest nerd, nicest man in the history of the world. I mean, the cleanest guy. You know, I mean, you know, I vehemently disagree with him on the politics of his, his crime agenda. Um, but he is this guy is. There's nothing you could dig up on him. There literally is nothing. I mean, they'll make it up. They'll lie no matter what. But I'm just, you, you know, what I mean. It's. It's it's just it's a really good idea, and I can't think of a better idea off the off the cuff. So I fully support Mark Levin's position that that should be the number one pick that we should we should be pushing now. 
And the White House needs to hear from it because, you know, I don't think they're so hot to trot on the idea. And, you know, I would just also push back on some of you who might say, oh, we need him in the, in the Senate. <laughs> the Senate's worthless. What, so now we have two instead of three? I mean, th- th- there's nothing you can do there. The whole thing is, a, it, there's no, and, and in fact, I would argue from my position, the only thing, because Mike Lee is so frustrated, he's like, when he can't beat him, join him. And he figures, let's at least get something done on something that I agree with the left. So he joins with the left on on jailbreak and gives his um, very pure conservative um, credentials to a very bad issue in my view. So uh, I'd actually rather him be out. I mean, you know, what is he going to do anyway? It's so much better on the Supreme Court. Again, I don't agree with it. It's horrible. It's like that. You're right. It should be much better to have him in the Senate than on a stupid court. When I say stupid, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean to, I, I think it has a very important role in where it works, but polit- when it, when it, they deal with politics, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's horrendous. It's everything. So I'm not going to disarm until the other side disarms on, on this issue. And I want someone that we know, and, 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 um, you never know a hundred percent, but to me, that is the surest pick is Mike Lee. Um, you know, look, someone can make a case for other people. It, it's not a lack of um, stature of those potential candidates, except for Kavanaugh, I, I do believe is a problem. And we saw that with Obamacare and, and, and I'm hearing some other things. But, you know, I, I just I just don't know. And and these people have been wrong before, some of these legal eagles. They, they have been wrong. Because remember, at the end of the day, there is a certain t- culture in the legal profession. And, you know, intellectually, they might be good, but are they actually going to have the guts? And, and you know, Mike Lee has, I mean, we see he's been in the grinder politically. We see it, um, that he didn't bend in the Senate. So certainly he's not going to bend, you know, where you don't stand for election in, in, in the Supreme Court. And I, I think Ted would be, the same way as well obviously sometimes it's better to pick a political guy because it's all politics anyway so let's be honest about it i mean i'm consistent but if you're gonna make it about politics then then yeah i'm gonna want a guy i know is gonna side with my outcomes i'm sorry you know that's just how it is now i just want to briefly just go over the subject of my column today what to expect and what not to expect. And this ties into what we want. So to be clear, you know, you know my contention. I have about a dozen reasons why the courts are irremediably broken. It's a one-way street, dead end. It's long run, it's never going to work for us. If you think we're going to reach a point where we're going to like patrol all these nanny state laws and strike them down the same way the left strikes down our stuff, it's not going to happen you know, you'll have one or two cases here or there, and the left respects it because it's worth it, because they benefit from supremacy in the other way on so many important issues. But if we ever got to that point, they're just going to stop listening to it. Everything that we should be doing, that you know, they'll actually do. But you have to understand, there's two problem. There's two types of cases that come before that that we're going to see. So. This all gets back to John Roberts. Before we explain the two types, there's John Roberts. A lot of people think, oh, we're home free. Now that you flip Kennedy, we have five to four. 
Now, look, if the courts ever have a case, should we castrate all conservatives? Yes. We would have five to four. Yes, John Roberts is not going to you know, go along with that. Although the four liberals will. You know, whatever hurts conservatives, they'll, I mean, they're that disingenuous. They're that hypocritical. But, so, so you know, there, there are certain things. There's two levels. There's stopping the new growing radical jurisprudence in the lower courts. And then there's downright going on offense. Call that defense. And then there's offense, judicial offense, where downright our guys sue their stuff and their precedents and the Supreme Court rolls back kind of longer term established precedents on bad precedents, anti-constitutional precedents. If you're looking for the latter in just this seat alone, I mean, unless Breyer and Ginsburg go, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I'm just telling you. Roberts ain't, ain't doing that. He's just not. He views his role as a as a not lurching the court in any one direction and you know, even though the left has moved us 50 light years into judicial Gemara to the left, that we would argue that to get back to the equilibrium, you have to you know lurch it 50 light years to the right. And that's not moving it to the right. That's moving it to what the plain meaning of the Constitution was, even, even by the Warren era standards. A lot of this stuff would be foreign. <clears throat> but, you know... That's how Roberts views it because he's a product of the legal culture and like a lot of this stuff is an anathema. He's not going to do it. Um, but we should definitely have a justice who's willing to do it. I'm just saying we're not going to have a fifth vote for that. Um, I want someone exactly like Thomas. I don't want a Gorsuch. I like Gorsuch a lot of things, but he has a problem on immigration. There's still a lot of unknowns. Um, lots of problems. Lots of problems in this unknown. I don't want unknown can't have that i think generally we would we do have three justices that are willing to, to to do a lot of things um and we would want a fourth but we don't have the fifth where i do think in the short run run we can make some headway defensively is on certain issues and in a certain trend and that is so let's talk about the, the trend which is defense so the problem that we're suffering now is basically the ACLU goes to a radical district within a radical circuit where they're automatically going to win the appeal on any radical decision they get from the district judge. And they they just get the most whacked out things. And they have the ability to apply a nationwide injunction on our foreign policy, national security, military, who we, you know, tr- who Trump admits to the military as commander in chief, immigration, election integrity. I mean, you name it, it shuts down our our government. And it's so important because it creates a jurisprudential velocity. It legitimizes it once it's in the court system and it puts it on hold. I mean, people are being issued social security cards now because of that. I mean, I mean, uh, illegal aliens. It's still going on and it takes forever to get the Supreme court to take it up. You know, 16 months It was egregious. We had to wait 16 months with the so-called travel ban. Even that was a long time, but that was actually pretty expeditious. They still will not take up a lot of these cases. Sometimes never. Sometimes these um, courts stand forever. And part of the problem is that they only shop it around to the bad circuits. So we we never get a circuit split. We lose all the time. And without a circuit split, they're very reluctant to take it up. 
Part of that is the invisible hand of John Roberts. I don't think we're going to have five to do to go on offense and a lot of things, but I think we're going to have five on defense, and that takes something before that that you need to understand, which is four. Four is a magical number, and the court's just like five. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, <clears throat> just to make it clear, <clears throat> that <clears throat> the justices, when they get an appeal <clears throat> from the lower courts, you know, someone loses and they appeal, they want to overturn in the Supreme Court, they file a petition, and they the court either grants certiorari, grant what's called cert for short, grant cert or deny cert. They have a vote. It takes four justices, not five, four, to consider the case and hear oral arguments and agree to make a determination and render an opinion on the case. Um, and then five, you know, they it's called the majority opinion. So part of the problem we're seeing now is clearly you don't can't necessarily prove this, but from watching for a while, what it appears is that you say, all right, well, maybe we don't win every case because Kennedy is a buffoon, but shouldn't we at least take them up if we have four? Well, the answer is we don't have four because Roberts, this is his shtick. Roberts in his heart is not going to go along with new anti-constitutional jurisprudence. I, I do believe he has enough respect for the Constitution. Um, foundationally, that's how he is. He's more aligned with us, but he has this thing where he doesn't want to lurch. He doesn't want to appear that the courts are that the Supreme Court is being too potent in one direction. The problem is that the lower courts are being so potent in the other direction that you have an obligation and responsibility to rein them in. We talked be earlier about the, the fact that the Supreme Court is not supreme to the other branches. But you know why it's called the Supreme Court? Because it's supreme to the lower courts. It is supreme. And they have an obligation to expeditiously, like, not wait a minute to overturn them. Meaning, there are certain complicated cases you might want to let stew in the lower courts. But if you have a, if you truly are an originalist on the Supreme Court, and you see a lower court saying that we can't have borders, and it's broadly consequential to the nation, and it's insane on the face of it, you have it an obligation to take the appeal from the appellate court. And I would argue if the um, respondents, the government, in some cases DOJ, would would file for an expedited appeal to bypass the circuits because they're just going to give them a runaround and say, look, Supreme Court, you got to shut this down. I, I would argue that they should, they should do that. That is true originalism. Now, true originalism, you shouldn't have to cry to them. You just tell them to get lost. But again, the justices need to recognize if our body politic is going to recognize it as such, if you want the Supreme Court to be supreme over the other branches, well, by golly, you have an obligation to make it supreme to your own stupid branch. Police your little pit bull there and stop sicking it on everyone. So that's the game that Roberts is playing because he doesn't want to be forced to make a determination because if he were forced, he would have to go along with it. He can't go along with like, you know, transgenderism is included in Title Seven of civil rights. I can't imagine he would rule that way, which all with which most of the circuits are doing, you know, such as the sec, Seventh Circuit, Third Circuit, and I would imagine, you know, he he wouldn't wouldn't rule that way, but he doesn't want to bring it up. So. I think in cases like religious liberty, Roberts is solid. You know, I think we could turn Masterpiece, which was a fake victory, a pirate victory, into a real victory because he actually wanted to take up Stormins. He actually did want to take up the 
appeal there, um, but we didn't have four because that was when Scalia died and, you know, before Gorsuch came there. I think we're going to take up Arlene's flowers and, um, you know, Stormins and finally put an end to that. Now, again, caveat, there's no finality when it comes to liberals. They'll they'll keep doing this. They don't even listen to a categorical um, Supreme Court ruling, and it's never safe, which is, again, why I think ultimately, as as much as I think we do have a short-term advantage and I want to take advantage of it, don't fool yourself into thinking this is going to fix the judiciary. It's not. It's always, and I, and I explain in this piece why not briefly, and I link to some other articles. You want to click through some of my hyperlinks, and I explain in longer form. Um, you know, we're almost out of time here. But anyway, I think guns is a very important thing because um, Roberts doesn't want to have to rule on right to carry. But again, we know already we have three for cert. You get a fourth on there, boom, you got it. Mike Lee will be that guy, no question. Once you take it up, he's going to have to rule with our guys. But to be clear, if you think you're going to roll back a lot of this other stuff, Roberts is not with us. So um, a lot more to say on this. A um, couple just brief bullets here. One thing that's very important is, so again, what if I were meeting privately, if I were a member of the Senate, I would press. And if I were the people in the White House vetting and the people in the know, we need to know his philosophy on judicial supremacy. I want a guy who is not a judicial supremacist, but who is a supremacist as a Supreme Court justice over the lower courts. I want someone who's going to agree outright with Clarence Thomas's concurrence in the Hawaii case travel ban that the lower courts have no power of nationwide injunction, and they will clamp down on that. And they will be an, a tireless advocate with their colleagues on the Supreme Court to police the lower courts. We need that. That That's what I want to hear from them. Um, you know, I want to hear immigration. I want to know that they, that they fully uphold the plenary power doctrine from the 1890s, not some of the stuff that's been put into Plyler and even Mandel a little bit in the seventies that they're using to poke holes in that there is no due process, right? Any claim to enter the country against the national will. There's no claim um, to remain in the country um, against the deportation other than what's written into statute and that Congress could write any statute, any amount of due process or, or lack of the, thereof. Um, that, that is, that is very clear. I mean, I want to be very, very clear about that. You know, this is what we failed to ask Gorsuch. I have a list of 15 questions. I'm going to go through it maybe next week. Um, but this is definitely one of them. We need to know where he's on sanctuary cities. Don't give me this phony federalism. Do localities have an unalienable right to federal grant pr- programs that they cannot – the federal government cannot say, look, if you're going to thwart immigration law, that's going to be used as, a, as one of the criterions in whether we give you grant funding. Do states have to hand over do – do they have to abide by detainers? They absolutely do. The same way they have to abide by deployment orders for the National Guard to go to Afghanistan, agree or disagree. And I actually disagree with the policy, but, you know, we don't believe in no federal government. We believe in the constitutional proper separation of powers. There are roles for it. And the only way – this is the true necessary and proper clause. This is the only way to keep our country safe. This is the only way to effectuate their power over immigration. 
because there is no federal land. It's it's all it's what is the federal government, but what's comprised of the fifty states. So if the fifty states will say screw you, na 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 na, we're harboring aliens. They're like states, state powers, federal. Well, <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's a true manifestation of the necessary and proper clause for the government to leverage a power they have, which is the grant funding. Um, in order to leverage against the power they indeed have that they're thwarting, you know, as opposed to in, a, in Dolby, South Dakota, where they were leveraging the appropriation power against the power they do not have to set the drinking age for, you know, for for the state. Yeah, that that's up to the states. But we say these people are not allowed in the country. I mean, I, I could quote to you from Madison, Sherman, Story, Scalia, on. You know the reason why immigration was given over to the federal government it was to prevent states like California from screwing other states. You know, there's been a lot of people killed. There was a cop killed last year in Kansas because of sanctuary policies in California that prevented him from being deported. Because you know they move around; they don't just stay there. So that that's BS. But you know, a lot of these Federalist Society libertarians are all into that. And I, I fear Gorsuch on this issue. I, I want to know where they stand on this. I want to know. But anyway, let me know your thoughts. Let me know what, what who you think. Um, it, it's not that Lee's the best pick. It's, to my knowledge, the one I'm most confident with. There could be those even better, but you know we need we need to find that out. Um, but more broadly, we need to continue educating about the role of the courts and that we shouldn't even be in this position. And you know, mechanically, what we're looking for. Um, and, and just to understand the velocity of the lower courts. So, um, you know, I, w- I plan on taking the week off next week. Enjoy your July 4th. Let's, let's reaffirm the principles of that sacred document. Understanding what true unalienable rights are, understanding the true purpose of government, its important roles, its essential roles, and its non-existent roles. Understanding our heritage, understanding that this belongs to us, and we're not going to go down without a fight. We're not going to surrender to non-elected judiciary, and if if it's going to become all-powerful, we're going to want our guys on that while concurrently fighting to reduce its own power. And uh, and look, finally, we we can't allow this to overlook other issues. We are going to get back to fiscal issues and immigration, and and you know we can't give the president a pass just because of this. We need to congratulate him on his commitment to to the, the judicial appointments, but you know if he screws us on this budget fight, is the last opportunity. His presidency is over with. We're never going to enact immigration priorities. And let me tell you this. I don't have time to go through this now because we're way over time. But as it relates to spending, as it relates to um, GDP, if you haven't listened to this show, okay, if you haven't listened to this show yet, I really want you to go back and and listen to the show on I'm trying to see where which episode it was. Was it two weeks ago? 235. So go to episode 235, moving Trump in the right direction on, on security and the economy. And what I discuss here is I answer 
a perplexing question. Why is it that we're in a boom period, best economy since easily 2005, very much possibly since 1999, best job market ever or tied with the best job market ever, yet wages are starting to go up, but not what you would think of the best boom period, and GDP growth is stagnant. Um, listen to that episode. I just want to update you. I've been, I was proven right. There was this thought that maybe GDP would be, maybe it would work out better with the tax cuts. Even with the tax cuts and everything, where is it at? Revised GDP for first quarter is 2%. And it would be one thing if that was the stagnating period. This is the boom period. And we can't even actualize 3%, much less 4 or 5 And I believe that is because of the debt market distortions and misallocation of resources. If we don't address that, you could cut taxes all you want. We will never recover. We will never have a healthy economy, even at its best periods. We'll be permanently kind of languishing. That is the hidden cost of debt you don't see. It's not just, oh, next generation or grandkids will have to pay, pay it back, so screw them. After me, the deluge, I don't care. No, this is hurting us right now, and we're not seeing it. And that's my thesis on the issue, and I think every day I'm proven correct on it. So you know, we we got to push the spending cuts. We got to push the immigration agenda in the budget bill. We can't let him go on this, and we got to inform him of the right moves. And I also want to encourage you to look at my other article today. Trump needs to get involved in the primaries and on the right side. Stop endorsing pukes or only when it's personal to you, and then leaving out good good people running on the MAGA agenda. If you're going to get involved in primaries, which he does, even against incumbents, against conservatives, so can't you be against pukes? Why are you endorsing Martha Roby when she's both a rhino and also personally was against you? His, his endorsements are just a pu- puzzling. We can't win primaries like the left could win primaries against their establishment. We don't have the money. But Trump could single-handedly do it with an endorsement. Trump's everything in a primary, for better or for worse. Let's benefit from the honey and not just incur the stinger when his endorsements are against conservatives. We need a movement making these plays. So I don't want this to distract. But again, we're going to have full coverage on all the angles of the judiciary as well. Um, I hope you enjoy your summer vacations as well. I'm looking forward to mine. God bless you all. Email me at drowitz.crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Remember the GoFundMe for justice for Dimitri, for Eileen and Zach Smith. Thanks for for donating ahead of time, and God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.